Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, BTM listeners, it's Safia here. We've got an extra episode this week. It's a live recording from the FT's Due Diligence Forum that took place in London on October 11th. In this discussion, the FT's chief features writer, Henry Mance, sits down with author Michael Lewis to discuss his latest book. It's called Going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon, and it chronicles the story of Sam Bankman-Fried, founder of the crypto exchange FTX. Lewis followed Bankman Freed right up until FTX collapsed last year. Now let's get into it. Enjoy. Excellent. Hi. And great to be here with Michael Lewis. Uh, someone was just telling me before this event that they were told on their first day of work if they hadn't read Liar's Poker, they, uh, they were fired. So, you know, it's a, it's a book that obviously endures. And um, you've made a career out of digging down into the sort of oddballs and mavericks who have uh, found a way to success. You've explained the financial industry, and I think uh, to a broader public than almost anyone, and you've managed the impossible feat of making it seem cool at times. So, uh, you know, a a real um, set of achievements. But I I don't know whether any of that prepared you for Sam Bankman-Fried. And one of the amazing details in this book is that the only person with a a company org chart at FTX was the therapist who was brought in to help oh, them all out. We need to talk about this. <laughs> can we start? Can we start with this? Go on. As a way of introducing how odd the the story is, and also just how odd my relationship to the story is. Um, so Sam Bankman-Fried, at some point, pretty early, when he collides with Wall Street, uh, when he becomes a high frequency trader, Jane Street discovers or thinks he discovers about himself that his particular aptitude is. Um, essentially functioning in semi-chaotic environments, like not playing chess, though he's very good at chess, but not great. But chess, if you've got to make moves in five seconds and the rules are changing uh, once every two minutes, you know, that queens are pawns or whatever. And that, that we're very often the right answer is not knowable, but thinking in a quantitative probabilistic way gets you to a better answer. And I think what he does once he discovers about this, it kind of puts a fine point in his own mind about himself, about what makes him special, uh, whether it's true or not, it's kind of how he sees himself, uh, is he proceeds to create lots of these environments. And his company is run like a chess match where you have to make a move every five seconds and they're changing the rules every two minutes. And, and there's just no order. And one symptom of the lack of order was like lack of job titles. I mean, no CFO, no formal list of employees. So like the bankruptcy and the prosecutors don't know who work there and no organization chart. And so when it all goes bust, one of the things that the, the guy who was running the bankruptcy, John Ray, says is, look how crazy this is. This is not even an organization chart. Well, at the same time, there are these compensating mechanisms going on inside of Sam Bankman's Freed's world. You thought you were going to have to talk, right? You know, I'm sorry. I'm just going to go on for a little bit. But there was all this emotional baggage, unhappiness, fallout that happened from the way he ran his affairs and created his little space. 
And he, he, had, he subcontracts these problems to other people. And one of the people he subcontracts them to is his own therapist, his own psychiatrist, who is based in the Bay Area, a fellow named George Lerner, who has become, by kind of happenstance, the psychiatrist to effective altruists, the whole to the community. He's, psych, he's a psychiatrist to Sam's girlfriend, Caroline Ellison, before he's psychiatrist to Sam. And Sam has the idea, I'm going to move him to the Bahamas and I'm going to make him the psychiatrist for the whole company. And so he moves to the Bahamas and in, in rapid order, virtually the entire staff in the Bahamas is seeking his counsel and wanting to come lay on his sofa and tell him about their problems. And a lot of the problems, almost all the problems, are work-related. And a lot of those problems are, I don't know where I am in this organization. I don't know who I'm supposed to be listening to or who I'm supposed to be. And so George starts interviewing people in therapy about where they are. In the, can I see the book in the organization? This is something that has not been, I've not been able to do it on television. I, it's just not because there's so much material in the book that I've had to get out. But George all by himself and not telling a soul in the world, especially not Sam, creates the only organization chart for FTX. And it's on the inside of this book. And he gives it before he goes and disappears. He gives it to me on a thumb drive. And it's like one of those family trees in a Tolstoy novel. If you want to follow the story or follow what's going on, you just look and you want to know who worked there, there it is. And it's actually a quite good picture. Uh, but Sam Bankman-Fried doesn't know that exists. And the prosecutors in the bankruptcy field don't know that exists. So it's an example of the weirdness of the story and the weirdness of my position in relation to it. George, as he was walking out the door, said, someone's got to tell this story in full. Here's everything I can tell you about these people. Here's the thumb drive. See ya. Uh, and it ended up there which I thought was very clever of my publisher. Yeah, uh, yeah. super stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's go back to the first interaction you had with, with Sam Bankman-Fried. Mm -hmm. And after your first meeting, you were put in touch with him by Brad Katsuyama yes. um, from your book, Flash Boys. Yes. You go and meet him and you come out enthusiastic, like raving, like saying to Brad, he should do business with this guy. So Brad was asking me, so could you meet with this guy? I didn't know who Sam Bankman-Fried was. I didn't know what FTX was. People at Crypto World had made several runs at me to try to write, get me to write about Crypto World. And every time I encountered it, I felt like it just felt hollow. Like the people were, they were just talking their book. Like, could you tell, it was almost like, can you, can you write a book about my bond portfolio and make it go up? That's what it felt like. And the stories they would tell were always so, I mean, just didn't, you know, going back to this is Bitcoin's going to replace the dollar. You know, it just, it didn't ring true. And so it was, he says, so Brad Katsuyama says, we're about to exchange shares in our company for shares in FTX. It's the fastest growing financial business I've ever seen. But it's an odd situation because I can't get a read on him, on the guy, on Sam Bankman-Fried. And I've called all over and nobody knows who he is. And what was peculiar about this and peculiar about the story and peculiar about Sam's relationship to the, to the wider world was at that moment, he was, according to Forbes magazine, they just announced he was worth $22.5 billion and was the richest person in the world under 30. And he'd come, out of, he'd come out of nowhere so fast that there was no social context for him. COVID didn't help. The fact that he was in Hong Kong didn't help. But so Brad asked me, go for a walk and just tell me what you think about him. And at the end of the walk, I did call Brad and I said, what could go wrong? Go ahead. Sure. There was nothing that was seemed at all alarming. I would say this. Hold on before you say what you're going to say, because this is interesting to me. People are now telling the story from, from the point of view of hindsight. 
no one, as far as I can tell, zero people actually said the thing you would say if you knew what the problem was inside of FTX. Lots of people, including the FT, were suspicious of crypto. FT was famously suspicious of crypto. Um, it's not a bad heuristic that if it's a crypto business, there might be something wrong in it. People did throw suspicion on FTX, but nobody said the deposits are in Alameda. People said a lot of other things, but no one said that. And that's the thing you would say if you were trying to bring the place down or you were trying to identify the problem, no one, no one saw it. So obviously there was not anything obviously wrong with this person when you met him because nobody saw it. And everybody wanted to do business with him. Well, what's, what's the lesson there? Because as you say, there are VCs trying to get into this company like mad. There's one company, right. you, you quote one VC who says, sends over a term sheet and says, you fill in the number. And we'll sign. And they actually back out, but 150 VCs go in. I mean, what? You, I'm sure What's you've done some th thinking about your own snap judgment on him. But what didn't they do, which they should have done? Well, I wouldn't have ever put my own money in based on a conversation. That's that's idiotic. I mean, I, I wouldn't. Have, I don't think I've ever put my own money in anyway, uh, at any point. So first, I mean, I guess the lesson would be like, don't rely on an interview to make an investment decision. <laughs> but, I, but, but I wouldn't. And I think most people in, room, in this room probably wouldn't. The lesson, if you're a VC, let's think about this for a minute. Because look, the VCs are getting all kinds of grief for not having done the proper due diligence, right? They screwed up by, by just handing this person money and not insisting on any kind of controls. No board, there's no board of directors, I mean, I mean, no CFO, that, all that stuff. No real insight into the business. However, I'm not going to completely defend them, but sort of defend them. What is the worst, what is the VC's worst nightmare? All these people. It isn't losing money on, on this. It's if, if FTX ends up being, you know, the next Facebook and they missed. So I think that's the first thing that's going on. It's like, this thing is moving so fast. He doesn't need our money. That was the other thing. It was he was profitable, so that it was he was in a he was in a seller's market, uh, and it's COVID and they can't meet with him. I mean, it's all over Zoom and remote. And once it starts, and so a few people are in, it becomes a rush to get in and, and a, a fear of being left out. I mean, that's not the best way of like running a portfolio, probably. But you can see how it you can kind of see how it happened. It's a, it's insane only in retrospect. In the moment, it felt to them fairly natural. And just to push this a little further, there's this thing out there when it all fell apart that, oh, it's like one big Ponzi scheme. And that's not the right, there's a definition of a Ponzi scheme. That's not the right description of this. People are trying to put this in a, a box, just like these other, this other financial scandal, Madoff or Ponzi scheme or whatever. It rhymes with a lot of financial scandals. It rhymes with Milken in some ways. It rhymes with long-term capital management. There's a whiff of Bernie Madoff. But, but one of the important facts about this is FTX itself was a gold mine. That, that, that business, that was a simple business. It wasn't the first business Sam Bankman-Fried created. That's the problem. He creates this hedge fund or this, whatever you want to call it, high-frequency trading firm for crypto. That's where the problems were. And almost accidentally, he creates FTX. He doesn't actually think he wants to create the exchange. He, tried, he creates the software for the exchange with his help from, help from his CTO. And he's trying to sell it to other crypto exchanges and keep a, a licensing fee or something. He doesn't even think he has the ability to run an exchange. So it's kind of accidental that he ends up, after nobody wants to do it, doing it himself. And further accidental that it works. 
But once it works and it is essentially the casino and the business is so simple, it's just like hosting trades and taking a little slice of each trade. Simple, boring business that was working. They were gaining market share, even as the market was falling apart, their revenues were holding up. Um, it's why the employees of the place had no sense there was anything possibly wrong because they, with all they saw was that. Now that, if Alameda had not existed and you just had that, with the f- possible futures of that, the VC investments make some sense. Uh, I mean, that, it could have been a really big business. That is, so that is on the assumption that crypto itself Mm. Had, a, had a purpose. So I'm, no, it isn't really. It, all it matters is that crypto people believe it has a purpose or people just want to gamble in it. Crypto could be, I, I mean, it's a tulip craze. So um, it's a tulip craze with a twist. But as long as people are trading crypto for whatever reason, and it may be because it has a purpose or maybe they just want to trade crypto, the casino is going to have value. I agree with you. You can make an argument from some, from 90,000 feet that crypto itself is a Ponzi scheme. That's a different thing. But as long as people are willing to trade it, the casino works. Um, and it isn't, it's not wrong that blockchain could be important. I mean, it's an odd thing. It's an odd fact of the modern world that the internet happens. It is a mechanism for eliminating intermediaries in all spheres of economic life. And the one sphere of economic life, which not only doesn't do that, does it not really get eliminated, but the intermediaries seem to be able extracting more and more rents is the financial sector. And blockchain as a possible response to that is not completely stupid. That's why Black Brad Katsuyama was in it. Yeah, I mean, the the pushback on that is that crypto, by having a decentralized ledger, is in fact inefficient. It's never going to have the speed, the the scale that you need. I mean, it doesn't now. The the risk of crypto is summed up brilliantly by one of the FTX employees. He says... Why, why don't more people just kidnap people with loads of crypto assets and hold them hostage until they, they hand them over? I mean, the risk of, 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 yeah. of, of having an asset that's held in that. Yeah, but no, I, I also, when you first described this book to me last year, I'm not mm. saying it was about Simon Bankman Free, but it was about, it was an extension of your book, Flash Boys, which is about high frequency traders mm. and, and the relationship. That's what got exchange. me into it. And it's, a, it's sort of how, the warping of financial regulation in right. the US. Right. And yet here you have, if you, even if you appreciate FTX as a business, it was an exchange, which like the exchanges you were writing about, was just making huge margins and, or, or huge amounts of money, right. I should say, on, on, on tighter spreads often. Right. But in, I mean, it's not the kind of business that, that you, Michael Lewis, would have uh, sort of approved of, as it were, in the, in the Flash Boys um, context. No, it wasn't the FTX. It's one of the mysteries. It's not, maybe it's not a mystery, but it's one of the curiosities of crypto world that um, how does this start? I mean, the people were running at me at crypto saying, write about crypto, write about crypto, write about crypto. I never found it interesting enough to want to write about. When crypto became a $3 trillion market, I got interested. And it was not the technology. It was not the trading. It was just, what are the social consequences of that incredible instant creation of wealth? And one of the social consequences was Sam Bankman-Fried. So that, that was the, the other hook I had was, that. And I said to Sam, I, at the end of the walk, I said, your story is bizarre. I, I mean, I, I was coming from nothing, but I, first, the sums of money. Second, what he intended to do with it or said he intended to do it. Third, with what he was actually doing with it. And fourth, how the whole world in about 18 months had reorganized itself around this new pile of money. And he was stress testing all these systems. You could see he was getting stress test American politics. He was doing things in the media that were bizarre, questioning models of philanthropy, never mind the financial system. So what interested me was 
like watching this interaction. What I said to him, I just want to, I just want to watch watching this interaction between this character and the world around him, because it seemed like it was like nothing I'd ever witnessed. And unlike a Mark Zuckerberg, who would be the closest we have to the speed of wealth creation. And I met Mark Zuckerberg. He's inaccessible to me. He like, he's very socially awkward. And Sam's socially awkward, but Sam was accessible to me. I could understand what he was saying. He'd answer questions. I could see that there was a literary possibility in him. Mark Zuckerberg, I just wouldn't know what to do with on the page. It would just be, oh, that was weird. You know, but with Sam, it was like, this is, it felt like a comedy is what it felt like. I felt like the beginning of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, <laughs> so with Sam Bamman Free, so you've, you've, your, your snap judgment, and just an interview judgment, but is on a walk, is this guy's real. He's this, got guy, this guy, it is, this guy is interesting and I want to watch. When do you change your mind and think, actually, it's going to go wrong? Not until it went wrong. There's a little backstory here. Because you called me, this is so we need to, we need to let them know when it's all falling apart. I'm in the Bahamas in the little compound where he is, all the employees have fled and I have it to myself. And it's the most magical, I mean, I say this in the book, but both the reporting experience and that moment and the social and the environment reminded me so much of New Orleans right after Katrina. I was there for Katrina and I wrote a big piece about it. One of my favorite things I've ever written. And it's my hometown. And it was the neutron bomb thing where neutron bombs come off, all the buildings are standing, all the possessions are there just as they were, and all the people are gone. And uh, I had the codes to all their offices, all their, all their apartments. I could sleep in any bed I wanted to sleep in. I could borrow their undershorts if I wanted to. I could eat out of their refrigerators. And it was just, it was like, that's what it was in New Orleans. You call me in that moment. So if you said the moment before that moment, how is this going to go wrong? I would have had answers to that question. The depositor's money is in Alameda would not have been one of the answers. Um, and in fact, with all the characters, at the very beginning, it felt volatile. Caroline, Nishad, Sam, Gary doesn't talk, so Gary didn't answer. But, but I, I, did, I did a pre-mortem. I said, you know a pre-mortem, right? I said, we're going to imagine all this goes wrong. It's going to all blow up. Tell me the story of how it all blew up. And this would have been back in like February when things were great for them. And they all had different answers. They wouldn't have divulged this, but they, I think they had sincere answers and they were worried about it. And it, Nishad was like, Sam gets, your point, Sam gets kidnapped. He said, crypto is the perfect ransom. And, I, and he's, he's completely unguarded. Someone's going to come grab him. But the, the thing that, that was going on in my mind when you called me, while it was a surprise to me what happened, um, it was not out of line with what I knew. I had half a story. I didn't have a book at that point. In fact, I still wasn't sure I was going to write the book. I didn't have a book contract, nothing like that. I'd spent a year with it and I was still figuring out the book. But there was this thing that had happened that I had fully reported. And it was early 2018, right after he leaves Jane Street. He creates Jane Street for crypto. That's the idea. But he does it with 20 effective altruists in Berkeley, California, only two of whom have any experience in the markets. And, and Sam has, what, three years of experience in the markets. And they, get, they raise $175 million from their fellow effective altruists. And it looks great for about a month. And then it, just, it looks like it's just blowing up. They're losing money. They've lost, literally lost the money, like 
where is the money? And they don't know how they've lost it. It's not that they've lost it. It's that they've <laughs> lost it. And, uh, and that's different, right? And it freaked them out. Not everybody, but Sam, who didn't mind losing the money? We lost it. We'll find it. You know, it was like, let's keep trading. That was his attitude. And they thought he was insane. They thought that, and 10 of the 20, including the entire rest of the management committee, leaves. They quit. And they think there's a range of opinion about him. And I interviewed them before FTX went bad and after. So I got the two views. But the range of opinion was uh, he is insane and he's criminal to he's just catastrophically disorganized in his mind that he needs this chaos and lives in this chaotic world, which is not suited to running other people's money. But in any case, they thought they were in big trouble and they all leave and he finds the money and then it all goes well. And they all, the ones who left say with one exception, one very intelligent exception, uh, the one woman in the group, all the guys say, wow, we were wrong and he was right. And everybody who stays says, oh, our uncertainty was unjustified. Sam's a genius. He was right. And that, that was a foreshadowing of what was going to happen later. And so when it happened, I went, ah, that's what happens. It was a little bit like reading a novel, living in his life. It was like, what's going to happen next? Does it make sense? Does it not make sense? And when it happened, it, it at once surprise shocked me. It was because it was really stupid among other things, but surprise shocked me. And it made sense with what I had witnessed up to that point, but I never would have guessed it, if that makes any sense. I never would have thought it. Uh, so in my process, I have, a, I have a witness to this process. The day before it all blows up, it starts on a weekend. By the next Friday, he's signing the bankruptcy papers. Um, and I had flown home just before the weekend had started because I'd agreed to go to a conference that Jeff Bezos hosts in a resort where he invites a hundred people and it's a kind of Ted talks and it's a fancy thing. It's fun. And I couldn't get out of that. Uh, so I'm at that conference and I'm with a film director, well-known film director who I use as a sounding board for stories. And I said, I got a problem. I've just spent a year and let me tell you about my year. I told him all about Sam Bankman Freed. I told him all about kind of the, what would be the first hundred pages in the book. And I said, I got a problem because I don't know if I can write it. I don't know where it's going. And he said, you don't have a problem. He says, you only have a problem if you want it to be a movie. He said, because it's not a movie because there's no third act. He said, but you can get away with this in a book. He said, you can dance your way to an end and the reader will never guess, will never sense that there's not an ending. And so he was trying to talk, he was kind of talking to me, giving me courage to try to go write the thing because he was so interested in this social interaction that this person was having with the, the world around him. So three days later, he writes me, he says, can I direct the movie? It's like, this is an unbelievable movie because it, it had all fallen apart. But I was in my, my process, I was in my head, when it all fell apart, I didn't know where I was going with it. I was confused whether I actually had a book or I just wasted a year. And when it all happened, I thought, now I, I kind of see it. I see it. I know where it ends. It ends, well, it ends weirdly, but it ends. There's, an, there's another alternate universe where you Don't wrote the book a bit too early. And then. No. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have written it. No? You no. think you would? I just would have left it. Um, Sam Bankman Fried, I mean, the, his kind of wrinkles, to call them politely, of playing video games in meetings, you know, not showering. These are, uh, yeah, these aren't, these aren't bugs, they're features. These are how he is. I yeah. mean, we think about it again with sort of Elon Musk or whatever. Um, 
And people say, well, is there any way of sort of ironing out some of those, I mean, literal wrinkles? Could in you have a good version of Sam Bankman-Fried? <laughs> Could you have done it? Could anyone have done it? I don't know. I don't think so. It's true that one takeaway from the story is the need for regulation and adult supervision, right? It's just like, first, it's seeded when he's a kid, this idea that grown-ups are stupid uh, and that the world is kind of stupid and that the only way he can navigate the world is by thinking about it by himself, using his kind of mathy way of thinking about the world. And if, it ha- if what he concludes ends up coinciding or, or, or consistent with what grownups are saying, fine, then they'll do it that way. But often it comes out a different way. It's true that if you had imposed on that um, some supervision, it might have worked out better. Certainly, like at Jane Street, he's a success, right? At Jane Street, it's okay to have a Sam Bankman Freed because you have 200 of them and no one, one of them is able to sink the firm. 200 of them are making these sometimes preposterous expected value calculations slightly better than the rest of the market. And if they're, you know, as a group, you will win. But any one of them at any one time is capable of causing some harm. Picking one of those people out and letting them run their world doesn't work very well. So uh, he was useful as part of a machine that was supervising him. Is there a way to change his like essential nature so that you put him on top of this organization and it's less chaotic? I mean, I don't know. I don't think you could have. You know, I think that there was like tragic fatalism to it. You talk in the book how Bitcoin comes out of the financial crisis. GameStop comes out of, you know, a lack of faith with those markets as well. Is that something, right. you know, right about it? Flash Boys, potential rigging of the market. What does the collapse in, in crypto assets, what does that lead to? I mean, does it lead to something in terms of a political reaction, in terms of a societal reaction? That's interesting. I did not even thought about it. Crypto was such the backdrop or just the set kind of setting for the story. Rather, It wasn't really a book exactly about crypto, although it's a story that kind of only could have happened in crypto. Um, what is the consequences? Well, are you assuming that crypto is dead? Are you, are you think it's in remission? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I can't see the use case. I right. can't see, right. you, know, what, what, you know, what this thing's functional for. Unless it, how can it be both a store of value and an investment opportunity where it keeps going up? Let's do this just for fun, because it doesn't matter what I think. How many people here think crypto basically is dead in the long run? That is... About, about half. And the, who have the other view that it, it might still have legs? Yeah, so with, with, with we're split. 50% of the audience That's kind of wrong. how my mind is. Um, That's how I feel. I feel split. I don't feel like I don't, this is not a yeah. judgment I have to make. I'm not buying any crypto. But suddenly the Bahamas, who sort of, they, they missed out on insurances or reinsurance. Yeah, they go a, into cruise ships, COVID hits, yeah. they're screwed. And I mean, you, they could use some investment. Advice. They could use some investment. But right. I mean, even the UK has tried very hard to push itself at times as, as, a, a, as a crypto hub. Your book is a cautionary tale for those kind of, financial centers? Well, crypto is a lawless place, right? It's attracted pirates. And so in defense of the Bahamas regulator, Christina Roll, who wrote the r- rules that enabled, that gave a home to FTX, and who said, back in good times, I wrote those rules. I didn't know who was going to roll in and take advantage of them. She was grateful at that time that it was FTX. But she said, my fear is any day I wake up and there's going to be some headline that's just disastrous. And she was right. Uh, she knew she was taking a risk. She thought it was a justifiable risk for the Bahamas because the Bahamas was in such dire straits. And she thought, what is the path for the Bahamas to having a middle class? And this was one. I don't think she was, I don't think it was a dumb bet. I think that was kind of smart of her. It was like 
a bit like the venture capitalist. It was like, you can understand why she took the risk. Just because it went bad doesn't mean it was a stupid risk to take. Um, what I loved about her was how clear-eyed she was about Sam all the time. And never, never, she didn't go up and down about him. She said, in good times, she said, she thought of him as kind of shy, a little bit vulnerable personally. And she said, but he, it's odd to me, he doesn't understand why people don't trust him. When, when he's talking to you, you can see him making expected value calculations about the effect of everything he says. It's like, you can see you're a board game to him. And I don't mind that. It's, it's just, that's the way he is. But she saw that instantly. She read him very well. And, you know, it went bad. It's sad it went bad. Have you read it, by the way, the book? The book? I mean, you haven't had much time. Of course I've read it, yeah. It's only course. been out a week. I mean, it was embargoed in the most pretty strict way. So it's only been actually available. Have, have I not given an impression of No, no. Of I mean, uh, well, you, someone could have done the, someone could, I mean, you could, you're very glib. You could completely pull off an interview without having read the book. I got myself sidetracked. I don't know what I was saying. Uh, you're talking about Christina. Uh, 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 oh, 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 it's about how you feel about it. If you ask me what I hope for the reader, I withhold my own judgment, right? I don't tell the reader, do I think he's guilty or innocent? I just leave that out intentionally. I withhold some judgments about like what his medical issues are and what the brain wiring is. I let other people do the investigation and do the judgmental stuff and all the rest. But my feeling about the story is it's been interesting to me, the rage. So there's a rage about this person. It's a rage. You probably see a little bit of it, but in the United States, the rage is amazing. There's been a bloodlust since it all fell apart. And, you know, just because there's a mob doesn't mean the mob's target's the wrong target, but mobs have a, they make me queasy just generally. They're not attractive things. There's been a kind of a mob attitude towards him. And the, the emotion around it is anger. And as you get closer to it, not just me, but the people on the inside who lost everything, people who have brought their parents and cousins and brothers and sisters onto FTX, who lost everything and are furious about what happened, feel mainly sad about him. There's a, sad, a kind of sadness about it more than anger. And that distinction I thought was interesting. And I thought to the extent I lend a kind of emotion to the story, it's that. It's like anger is not that useful emotion. The sadness thing is it, it feels sad. It feels like this person was the beneficiary, but the perverse beneficiary of, of some contemporary forces. In no other time in history would Sam Bankman Free be in this situation. He never would have even gotten onto Wall Street. It's like he's of the moment. The forces propel him, and uh, he's really not up to managing these forces. He is flawed, deeply flawed, but deeply interesting. And I wanted the kind of people just to have the context for it so they could have a, a fuller emotional response beyond anger. Yeah. Objects. You've written a lot of books. I've written some. And a lot of them have uh, been bestsellers and a lot of them have been wonderfully critically acclaimed. Does it feel different this time? I mean, you're getting pushback on this book and you're getting pushback as well on a a book you wrote in the past, The Blind Side, about American football, about a a, a, a footballer called Michael Orr. I'm not really getting pushback on the book because his target was the movie and the movie was quite different from the book. I mean, people have seen The Blind Side and even, is is it familiar here? Yeah, I mean, we we obviously don't understand anything about American football. kind of the story. um, The basic idea is that he was a guy from a very troubled background in Tennessee, crack addicts, foster home, ran away from home, didn't have a home, then is taken in by this family. And he says he thought he was adopted, whereas in fact it's a conservatorship. Did you know he wasn't adopted? It's in the book. Uh, It was a guardianship, well, conservatorship. They didn't call it that until Britney Spears made it infamous. But the reason they did it 
So first, it was never used for financial reasons. It was used only to give him money. It, but it, the reason they did it was, it was bizarre, but it, it's in the book. At the time, the NCAA, which polices college athletics, was policing vigorously at the time the border between amateur athletes, especially poor black athletes, and rich white boosters of the school who would try to entice the athletes to go to their school. And the NCAA would not have allowed Michael Orr to go to the school he wanted to go to because of the help the Tuies gave him unless there was a legal arrangement in place. They said it. So they had to do something legal and that's what they did. The way this starts is the Blindside movie made a fortune. Not for me, but it made a fortune. It made a half a billion dollars for the people who made it. And Michael Orr said the Tuies had made millions from the movie and it hid it from him. And that this conservatorship was somehow the mechanism for doing that. And I knew instantly that that was false because I was the world's authority on how much money they made in the movies because it was my money. The way that money got made was I sold the book rights to make a film to Hollywood. And normally what happens when an author does that, they just keep the money and the, they let the subjects fend for themselves. And oftentimes the movies feel like they can just distort the real people enough that they never have to involve them. And at least that was my advice at the time. I instead gave the Tui family half of my money. So I knew the accounting. I knew exactly how much money had gone to them and to me. And to the extent there was a scandal, the scandal was the scandal of Hollywood accounting. They made half a billion dollars. We supposedly had a percentage of the net profits and we didn't get any. So what I I got into the fight, I jumped into the fight because I called a reporter and said, I know this is not true. He's accusing them of stealing money. And subsequently, it's emerged he was trying to extort money from them two years ago. And two years ago, he called me and said, could we go on the road and talk about the blind side to make money? So there's some money issue going on in his life. And he's lashed out in this way. And in the current media, political, cultural climate, it is uh, dangerous to stand up on the behalf of this rich white family in the face of charges made by this rich black kid. I mean, he's there, he made $40 million in the NFL, so I don't know if he's... A, He's still rich, but, you know, politically, it created problems for me to do this, but I did it. And even Michael Orr isn't questioning the book. So the book has actually, if I just stayed out of it, the book would have been, my agent said, stay out of it because it's just about the movie. But the book is like, it's not been touched. Do you, th- do you think the film is good? Do you think the film is accurate? So it, it took half the book. So yes, I do think they completely captured the spirit of the thing. He was a part of their family for years. Like, actually, they loved him. Actually, he seemed to love them. It's sad. Again, it's more sad. It's like, and breathtaking that he could get himself around in his head to the view that they exploited him in some way. And that he feels this way. I can tell you that it would not shock me. This is going to sound weird to you. If we're sitting here in five years and they're all back together again and they've forgiven him and their family again, there's still some feeling there that I think, and I think it might, once it blows over, they may be reconciled. So but your broader question about, am I used to being hated? Uh, and not really, twice this has happened before, not the blind side. Twice when books came out, I faced a vicious and hostile kind of reaction to it. The first was Moneyball. And it was a war when that book came out that you wouldn't have seen it because it was mainly in baseball but, or American in sports generally. But anybody who was classified as an expert in, in professional sports went after it. And to the point where for about a year, I could not turn on a sporting event 
on American television without running the risk of having someone say something nasty about me or the book. And the book, the book had to fight at kind of hand in hand combat for about a month or two. And there were a lot of nasty reviews, mainly by local journalists. So I had that experience. And the other one was Flash Boys. And that was more peculiar because it was essentially an organized and financed campaign by a few high frequency trading firms. And it actually extended into Washington. They created a lobbying effort to actually lobby against the book. In the case of this book, I mean, you can't imagine it, but if you could imagine it, if this book was published 15 years ago, you wouldn't have seen this reaction. It's the existence of Twitter. It's the ability of people who are upset or threatened or whatever to organize, to create a noise. But the odd effect, so I've seen it twice and I know what it does, um, it sells the hell out of the book. <laughs> I, I've sold in the first week 100,000 copies of this book. I've never done that before. That's a lot of books. So that means, I mean, that sounds mercenary, but it also, what it means is you're gonna have 100,000 readers and the readers will read the book and the book will finally it's not going to be choked off. It'll have its life in the world. So I don't worry that much about it. Right. I just want to ask. I mean, if you like me less, that would bother me. But but if, <laughs> but but I don't think it hasn't really affected my personal life. Um, no, I don't. Okay. Uh, um, right. uh, I just want to ask one quick thing, and one is that there are two other, well, at least two other potential villains in this book, other than Sam. One is. John Ray, who comes in to clear up at the end. Right. And some of the quotes from him are, uh, are amazing. And, and the other is uh, CZ. And yeah, I just oh, wonder, yeah. you don't want to say whether you think Sam is guilty or not, but do you feel that those other people are almost as worthy of the justice system's attentions or uh, of, of accountability? Well, well I don't, it's not what I think. CZ is getting the Justice Department's uh, attention. And my understanding is they would love to arrest him. So we'll see what happens there. I don't know. But he seems to be the focus of Justice Department interest. Uh, so the bankruptcy thing is so interesting to me because I didn't know anything about U.S. bankruptcy until now. It's like you know, I did never paid any attention to the process. And the process is scandalous. This may be a particularly scandalous case of it, but it is also, I think, generally scandalous. Um, it used to be supervised, regulated by the SEC. And that changed in the 1980s when I guess the SEC felt overburdened. And now the only oversight to the process is a character in the Justice Department called a trustee and who has no teeth. That person can bitch and moan about how the lawyers are running the bankruptcy, but they can't actually do anything about it. And that trustee has written letters to the, ju the bankruptcy judge saying, this is, you can't do this. You can't let the law firm that was advising Sam Bankman-Fried in front of his app with his applications to like the SEC and the CFTC before things went bad to not only talk him into going into bankruptcy, but then making half a billion dollars off the bankruptcy, running the bankruptcy. They're sitting on the evidence that might implicate them. And the process by which they get hired is very squirrely. I mean, they hire John Ray to run FTX. And the next moment, John Ray hires them to run the bankruptcy. And the fees involved, I haven't counted lately, but I had one institutional creditor had done some analysis and I saw it. They think the bankruptcy fees are going to be a billion dollars, a billion dollars. So what, what they saw, what they saw in the case of FTX is a very fat corpse. It was not just a corpse. It was a corpse with lots of assets in it. And one of the peculiarities of this story is that, you know, it hasn't been much press about it, but the bankruptcy itself has released the fact that there are $8.6 billion of customer deposits that are missing. They've already recovered $7.3 billion in liquid assets, 
And these weren't like clawbacks from people. These were $7.3 billion that Sam had lost, like Easter egg lost. And they found the money. They found this much money. And they're sitting, this is where it gets great. John Ray, when I first sat down with him, is telling me how he instantly, the moment he saw a picture of Sam, he could see he was a criminal. And that as a result, he wasn't gonna speak with this person or ask him where he hid his Easter eggs. And that as an example of how insane that Sam was. He said, look at the stuff he bought in his little venture capital portfolio. He bought this business called Anthropic. What an idiot, he said. He said, there's nothing there but an idea. He gave him half a billion dollars for 20% of the company. Well, you know what's happened with Anthropic. I mean, the latest valuation, it sounds like Amazon has invested at a valuation of $30 billion. So they're sitting on a stake, it's been diluted, but I think it's like a 15% stake that's of a company that if that is worth what it seems to be worth, it's possible we will be sitting here in a year and Sam Bankman-Free will be serving a life sentence and customers will be getting their money back. That's not an outrageous thought. Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure seeing you and hearing you talk through this amazing character and set of events. As you say, you see, I mean, you see it as a comedy, but this guy is facing life in prison. It's a tragic comedy. You know, it's like this weird, uh, it's a weird genre, but yes. Will you visit him in jail if he goes there? Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, wonderful. Thank you all very much for listening. A big hand for Michael Lewis, please. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you want to read more from the FT about Sam Bankman Freed, FTX, or Michael Lewis, The articles linked in our show notes are free to read right now. This bonus episode was produced by me, Safia Ahmed. Topher Forges is our executive producer. Sound design and mixing by Sam Giovinco. Cheryl Brumley is the global head of audio. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.